Welcome everyone to a webinar hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Clemens Che. I'm a research fellow at the Institute. And today we are very pleased to welcome Ambassador Dr. Robert Hunter. And uh, Dr. Robert Hunter was the US ambassador to NATO from 1993 to 1998, where he was the leading architect and US negotiator in adapting the alliance to the post-Cold War world and negotiating the NATO airstrike decisions that ended the Bosnia war. Now, on top of that, he was also part of the NSC staff under President Jimmy Carter, which of course uh, the Carter Doctrine is the, the focus of our discussion today. And uh, Dr. Robert Hunter was the leading official for Europe and then the Middle East and North Africa, which included developing the Carter Doctrine for the Persian Gulf. He was also foreign policy advisor to Senator Edward Kennedy. And in his uh, career, he was also twice decorated the Pentagon's highest civilian award for distinguished civilian service and by seven foreign governments. He is currently the International Affairs Advisor to the Mayor of New York City and Ancien at the NATO Defence College. He has a PhD at, from the London School of Economics. So we are really, really pleased to be hosting Dr. Robert Hunter today on the topic of the Carter Doctrine. So before we go on, maybe we can um, let me just set out some ground rules for our audience. If you'd like to put in a question, please do so. Please type your questions in the Zoom chat box and then I can relay to our speaker, relay them to our speaker for today. Um, so let's take a trip down memory lane. Um, and in, in, in one journal article produced in 1980 by Professor John Somerville, he, he actually wrote that, you know, um, he criticized the double standard logic of the Carter foreign policy because, um, you know, President Jimmy Carter was insistent that the Soviets in Afghanistan represented an illegal invasion and, and, and he preferred to use invasion over, you know, intervention. And of course, we'll be asking our speaker about this. At the same time, you know, U.S. forces in Cuba was seen as a legal intervention. So, you know, in this context, um, and of course, um, you know, with respect to the Persian Gulf, you know, and, and U.S. policy over there, how do we reconcile um, the, these definitions of uh, invasion versus intervention? And over to you, Dr. Hunter. Asha, I don't think we ever thought about the differences of two words. Maybe you can explain it to me. Uh, the Carter Doctrine actually originated uh, prior to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It emerged mostly because of the insecurities that had emerged in that region following the Iranian uh, revolution of the previous uh, January 1979, uh, January and February 1979. And there was a concern that that could spread to other countries uh, in the region, uh, including calling into question not only the reliability of uh, outside in involvement with other regional countries, but also if, if you read the document itself, and I recommend that people actually read the document. Uh, one thing I learned at LSA was always read a document. Don't listen to what the media tell you it is, read the document. Uh, we're having that right now with about the United States leaving from Afghanistan. If people go back and read the agreement, 
of February 2020, uh, what happened this year was foreordained. It's in the document. Okay, uh, so we were concerned to a great extent about oil. Uh, that was well before the time when the United States was making new discoveries. It was after the uh, oil shock of uh, 1973 and the long lines at, uh, in the United States, which was uh, came about not just because of the, the oil shock from abroad, and we can even talk about whether there actually was one, but also because of economic policies that uh, had been inherited by uh, uh, the Carter administration. And also, even today, people talk about America being a net exporter of energy, but countries that we are closely relying, uh, aligned with, uh, or at least whose prosperity matters very much to us, that includes Singapore, incidentally, are heavily dependent upon oil and uh, natural gas from the Persian Gulf. Uh, throughout uh, Europe, Western Europe in particular, uh, despite the gas pipeline out of the Baltic from, from Russia to Germany, et cetera, and also Japan and others in, in the Far East. But there was very much a concern with what was happening uh, with regard to Iran that this might have a contagion uh, that would spread uh, uh, to potentially a shutdown of, uh, of oil. We also have to remember that that was a time when you had uh, a, a kind of a Sunni uprising uh, in two countries. One was in uh, Saudi Arabia, the seizure of the Grand Mosque, and another was in, uh, in Pakistan, in which the United States uh, embassy was actually taken over for a brief period of time. So uh, the background was instability in the region, uncertainty about what might fall out from the Iranian uh, uh, revolution. And it was only after I guess in December sometime, you can tell me what the date was, when the Soviets went into Afghanistan, that the focus of what became the Carter Doctrine shifted significantly from an overall framework for security for the region against uncertainty uh, to making sure the Soviets understood uh, that if they pushed beyond Afghanistan uh, into Iran, uh, that that would be are totally unacceptable. And there is the famous paragraph in there, if you read the documents, that uh, any threat from outside within the region, uh, then that would consider an attack on the United States and would bring back, uh, bring about American response, including potentially military force. But as we talk about the Carter Doctrine, we have to understand the actual phrasing related to a threat from outside the region. It wasn't just about higgledy-piggledy about what might be happening within the region. The key challenge of it was about the Soviet Union. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hunter. Um, you know, when you talk about the challenge from outside and you talked about, you know, the Carter Doctrine and how it relates to the extra-regional uh, power, and this was actually the focus of uh, a very heated debate that, that happened, you know, on the same day as, as you are on now, on the 21st of September, by the Quincy Institute. And they had, they had two speakers on board discussing, you know, whether um, US foreign policy in the Middle East was really all about preventing a power from within the region from establishing some kind of regional hegemony, or really 
um, preventing an extra regional power, someone from outside, uh, such as Iran, China, and Russia, from from you know by limiting that influence from outside. So, what is your take on that? Is it really about preventing regional hegemony from the inside of of the Persian Gulf, or in today's context from the outside? Well, at the time, there was no question of any internal power aspiring to hegemony. Uh, if you want to talk about any country being the regional hegemon, and we didn't use the term, it would have been the United States. Uh, we were the dominant power there. We had been uh, uh, ever since uh, Britain withdrew from east of Suez in 1968. And that, of course, flowed from the withdrawal of uh, France and Britain from the Levant in 1947. So there was no question of, of a regional hegemon. And if I may be blunt about it, uh, there's no question about it even today. Uh, the idea that uh, Iran could become a regional hegemon, uh, quite frankly, that's nonsense. Uh, it is a useful talking point uh, for countries that either want to have the support of the United States or have aspirations of, of their own, not to be hegemons, but, but to have uh, uh, their own aspirations. And of course, relating to today, there are uh, two big countries that are involved in that. And, one smaller one, the two bigger ones are Saudi Arabia and Israel, and the smaller one is the uh, United uh, Arab Emirates. But at the time, it was uh, wanting to have some kind, with, with the Iranian revolution, right, of looking at it and saying, you know, we really haven't thought this through thoroughly. What could happen if indeed these revolutionaries were able to pursue what was their declared intention to go into other Shia countries, and uh, some people in the United States may have confused that Shia versus Sunni, uh, as you as you may know, that even when uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and his people were trying to extend their uh, influence, uh, revolutionary influence elsewhere, uh, they didn't find any takers in the Sunni countries, and not a lot of takers either in the Shia countries, of uh, the ones like Tajikistan, et cetera. Uh, and and not even not even Iraq, the, the parts of Iraq that uh, are very much uh, Shia. It's a dominant, of course, uh, a Shia society in Iraq. It just didn't work. But we weren't sure, uh, and we didn't have a comprehensive approach to the region. hadn't felt we needed one, uh, except for what uh, had been called. I think Bezetsky used the term regional influentials, in order to have quote, stability, one of these very elastic terms, and I'm not sure I even know what it means, or maybe none of us know what it means, uh, and predictability, uh, we needed to kind of get things together beyond just regional influentials, uh, which there were several in different parts of the world, uh, to kind of do things that were consonant with American interests without American direct engagement, all right, to try to have a lessened footprint uh, but still achieve certain kinds of things. And in fact, the regional hegemon in that region was Iran under the uh, Shah of Iran. I remember full well, for example, the Shah's last visit to the White House. At that point, I was working on Europe, but I, I remember being on the ellipse as he was having the uh, ceremony out in the, uh, uh, the south of portico of the White House, between President Carter and the Shah and smelling tear gas. 
because of the protests there. And uh, maybe we didn't take it uh, seriously uh, enough at that time. I also remember President Carter's visit uh, to Iran that occurred during the, near the end of, uh, of the Shah's, uh, Shah's reign. And then all of a sudden, this thing happened. And one reason we were, I guess, let's face it, uh, I wasn't, again, I don't have to take the blame for that because I was working on Europe, partly because a deal had been cut by the previous administration. I'd have to go back. I, I think it was probably Nixon uh, or Ford, probably Nixon, agreed with the Shah to pull out American CIA assets within the country. So the United States did not have the warning that we might otherwise have. And on top of which, uh, the Iranian ambassador in Washington, a man named Ardashir Zahidi, who's still alive, incidentally, who had been foreign minister, and he was sent off to uh, Washington, and he was a smooth talker. Uh, he gave out lots of caviar. Uh, he had very good meals at the uh, at the embassy. He once at a party that we were all involved with, uh, invited to, those of us who worked on it. He was dancing with uh, Elizabeth Taylor, but. He was misleading the United States as to the stability of the regime. If I can segue for a minute, uh, I, kind of a little bit of background. I was with Ted Kennedy in uh, 1975. We went to the Middle East and had an audience with the Shah. I timed it an hour and 47 minutes, the longest uh, audience he'd ever had with a foreigner. And we came out of there. And Kennedy said, and this is one of those things I'll just, you just never know what to do with it. And Kennedy said, you know, this guy with all his money, you'd think he'd get a suit that would fit him better. And I said, oh, he looked to me like a guy on chemotherapy, something like that. He was a shot in the dark. Five years later, the French doctors finally told us that that's what was going on. They never bothered to tell us. And so in the end point of what was going on with the Shah, where we still thought, he could be a regional influential. And yes, we could see what had happened on the uh, the uh, theater fire that took place, I think, in August of 78, something like that. Uh, but we didn't know how sick he was and that he wasn't going to be able to, uh, to hang on. So it was something of a surprise when uh, uh, the Ayatollah came back. Uh, again, the French facilitated that. Uh, it wasn't their responsibility. They put him on a plane and sent back to... Uh, uh, back to Iran, and the Ayatollah played the outside world fantastically. He was a, a superb political tactician, tactician, and he led with his people to believe that he was just going to be another kind of a, a person overthrowing a, a hated monarch and that sort of thing. And don't worry about it. And it was only uh, on the 4th of November of 1979 uh, when the students, and I think they were students, seized the American embassy. Now remember they had done it earlier in the year and the government came in under the Ayatollah, threw them out, gave the embassy back to the United States. But I think what happened, and we took us a while to figure this out, is the Ayatollah, who was still having trouble uh, consolidating the revolution, wanted to get his constitution, he wanted to get his government, he wanted to get rid of those people who, like so many revolutions, uh, uh, become uh, excess baggage, he seized upon 
what the students had done, he incorporated it. And that led to the 444 days of, uh, of uh, the uh, hostage crisis. But the original thought of the Carter Doctrine uh, took place as I conceived of it, uh, literally on the 28th of November that year, which uh, I have a memo here, which uh, you can find it on the internet if you want. It's a declassified document that I wrote a memorandum to Brzezinski, who was the boss, on the 20th of November. And I'll just give you a couple of lines here. What it said, uh, we will have the United States a consistent and insistent demands for a strong, coherent policy and clear leadership by the president. And it recommended that he give a major speech that would include a series of concrete, specific steps including domestic and international energy efforts, some tailored increase in defense spending, which had been going on throughout the Carter administration anyway, uh, and our position toward and support for other countries in the region within the context of respect for individual national integrity, independence, and respect for Islam. There should be a clear integration of political, economic, and military efforts no one is enough. The interrelationship is critical. I don't think I read so badly after so many years. And Spinning came back to me pretty soon thereafter. He said, look, why don't you put this into a memo for the president? I said, OK, I'll do that. And I sat down. I said, oh, what the heck? Why just do a repeat of that to the president? Since I'm recommending a speech, why don't I write the speech? So I sat down and I wrote it as a presidential speech. And it went to Spig, and there was some massaging and back and forth. And, uh, the, and before it got to fruition, you had had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which kind of changed Agudilov's uh, focus, not just how do we have some kind of coherent policy which respected the interests and the rights and the human rights, as you see in the Carter uh, speech itself, uh, of the local powers and shifted its focus towards, uh, uh, towards uh, uh, the Soviet Union. What happened there is Carter, before the uh, State of the Union, uh, was uh, had his team in to go over this. And the State Department had a draft, which was, if I can be rude, was typical State Department ease. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you know, a lot of words that didn't mean anything. And Spig handed him my draft. And Carter, you may know this, read everything put in front of him. Never give Carter something you didn't want him to read everything. Because among other, other things, he was going to find typographical errors and <laughs> grammatical mistakes. He would read everything. So he read the two of them. He threw the uh, State Department aside, draft aside, and he said, I'm going to go with this. This is going to be my State of the Union. And that's how it, how it uh, uh, came into being. Uh, the key paragraph in there, the one about outside power, bring forth so and so, that was Brzezinski. About 90% of the rest of the speech I read, wrote, uh, which is, you might call it boilerplate, but it was actually context, context uh, to show what the United States had in mind uh, overall for the region, working with regional powers with a kind of the twin concerns. Uh, the potential infection of this peculiar revolution, which uh, 
by the time I did my memo, we already had uh, uh, the seizure of the embassy and it was gonna go on for a while. And then the secondary thing, which happened afterwards, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And we had no idea how far they were gonna go. It did look quite ominous at the time. And it took place in the context of some other things with the Soviets that weren't going terribly well. Yeah, and, 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 and you talked a bit about the, the doctrine and gave us some lines. And then before I go on, uh, I'd like to remind our audience that you can, of course, put in your questions in the chat box, or you could raise your hand and then we can then unmute yourself where you can then ask your question live. So let me move on. Uh, from the can, I, can I have one other thing? Yeah. Uh, I'm not taking all the credit here myself. Uh, as the crisis with the Iranians was going on that year, uh, I was in charge of the Middle East portfolio for the National Security Council staff. And it was a tiny staff in those days. We had about 60 professionals altogether. It's now 600, which meant that a few people had to do a lot of things. And there were only two of us working on the Middle East, me and uh, a man named Gary Sick, who you probably know, who runs uh, Gulf 2000. I, Maybe a lot of your people here on that. He was a retired uh, uh, Navy captain in intelligence. And I was in charge of the other thing, but Gary had the Iran portfolio. Thank goodness he had the Iranian portfolio. And that was an extraordinary amount of diplomacy going on, which of course became even more after the hostages were seized. So I got together while I was doing Arab Israeli and other things. And I said, you know, we really got to do some serious thinking. So in my office in the old executive office building next door to the White House, I invited four other people from the government at about the assistant secretary, deputy assistant secretary level from the Defense Department civilian, Defense Department military, a couple of people from state, and then a man from the CIA named Robert Ames, who uh, became very famous later on as one of the most extraordinary people I'd ever met on the Middle East who was on the operations side. And when they had the uh, embassy attacked in uh, Beirut, and I think it was 1982, uh, there was a meeting of the local CIA people. And Ames was visiting, and it was blown up, and, and he was killed in that. But the four or five of us got together, and we went soup to nuts over what was happening in that region. And out of that came the formulation. You know, we really do need, while everybody's off rushing doing the diplomacy, to try to get some kind of framework within which we would be able to act for the long term. Because any of your people here who have ever been in government will know uh, the immediate drives out the important. Uh, you do what you have to do for the next 15 minutes or, or the next 24 hours. And whatever your strategic perspective is, is probably going to dominate. So we had a kind of a little private think tank and it turned to be out to be extraordinary uh, useful. Uh, another one was uh, Bob Murray, who was a uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. He then became Undersecretary of the Navy and then ran the Center for Naval Analysis. Uh, these were some really very talented people uh, with a lot of smarts. Sorry, go ahead. No problem. Uh, I mean, uh, you gave a few lines in, in the Carter Doctrine data from, from the memo. Um, and just earlier in the day, um, you know, President Biden addressed the UN General Assembly and he said that US military power must be our tool of last resort, not our first. And then 
so how do we make sense of, of this when we, when we try to reconcile what is written in the Carter Doctrine, the pledge in it that, to say that, that says that to use all means necessary, including force, to defend US interests in the Persian Gulf? I mean, that's my, my first part of the question. The second part is, does the US still need military bases in the Persian Gulf? Do they need a forward presence you know, in the region? Well, frankly, uh, the Biden statement today and the Carter Doctrine are fully consistent because what the Carter Doctrine said was the use of force against the threat from outside the region. And there was only one potential threat from outside the region, which was the Soviet Union. And in uh, Christmas Eve in 1991, the Soviet Union disappeared. And on that day, the original meaning of the Carter Doctrine also disappeared. There was no external threat. And in fact, there's no, still no external threat, uh, despite uh, how many people in various places like to manufacture <laughs> threats because they kind of yearn for the certainties of the old Cold War. Uh, but it was also true that in order to be able to implement that, it was going to be need, need to have some assets uh, in the region. Uh, for the actual implementation, but also to give reassurance to countries of the region that we were serious, if it came to that. Can I remember how startling this was? Uh, not only what had happened in Iran, uh, but uh, that proved over time to be of limited effect beyond Iran, actually became more of a fact after uh, utter stupidity of invading Iraq in 2003, which uh, offered uh, opportunities for Iran, uh, which didn't exist before, but how far that's gone is another, another debate. But it was because of the Soviet invasion. Um, and so we were looking for different places to do that. Now, later on, after Carter was out of power and we got to Reagan and Reagan ran in part on a myth that somehow Carter had been disarming America and that we needed to do a lot more uh, with defense, which is absolutely a myth, because every single year of the Carter administration, he had increased defense spending. And in fact, in the NATO summit of 1977, which I attended and helped prepare, uh, the allies adopted an idea that every year, because defense spending had gone down quite a bit uh, across the alliance, that there would be an increase of defense spending 3% per year in real terms. And that carried on, uh, carried on. In fact, I don't think I'm giving anything away. Uh, even the next year in the 1978 summit, when it was in Washington, NATO summit, which I ran actually, I organized the whole thing. Uh, and Carter saw this proposal in there for a 3% uh, increase in real terms. He said, I never agreed to that. What's that doing in there? because he already was getting skittish about too much potential military presence. This is way before anything had happened in Iran. And as a result, the poor Secretary of Defense had to go through all the documentation from the previous year's uh, uh, NATO um, preparatory materials for the president. And on page 67, I think it was, he found this commitment to a 3% goal and Carter got there. He said, well, it's in there, so I must have read it. And I must have agreed to it, so I agree to it. Because Carter knew if it had been in the document, he would have read it. Okay, so by the time it got to uh, Reagan, they were looking for things to do all over the place. Uh, and uh, we were 
got into a significant amount of trouble. Uh, this is not germane to your topic, but the biggest amount of trouble was the thing we call Star Wars, which was absolutely cockamamie proposal. The only thing that the effort to do strategic defense initiative, I was out of government then, so I could say what I wanted. I call it SDI, silly damn idea. All that did was undermine, if it had worked, didn't work, uh, would have undermined deterrence. Uh, uh, but fortunately, it never got very far. Uh, so the actual implementation, not wasn't the implementation of the Carter Doctrine. I've already described what it was and what it wasn't. But a lot of people tried to use it to say, well, Carter did this, so we can do that. Well, they were doing that almost out of whole cloth, out of whole cloth. In fact, uh, you will know one of the great ironies is when uh, uh, the uh, president, uh, President Reagan decided he needed some help in dealing uh, with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Uh, he needed to find some ways of getting some arms, that sort of thing. So they went to the Israelis and the Israelis went to the Iranians. And it became sort of the Iran-Contra affair because when it came out that we were actually asking the Iranians to be helpful for uh, armaments for something going on in Central America, uh, people in this country just, oh, come on, that's it. Come on, let's do it. We had uh, Ali North, who was in the National Security Council staff, who was went off to, you may remember, went off to Lebanon uh, and suckered the poor US ambassador there to doing what he wanted. And he had a key in favor in the shape of a cake. And this was designed to try to get some American hostages, I think there were six of them, had been seized in Lebanon. And he wanted to go off to, uh, uh, this was after the hostage, the, Iranian hostage crisis had been resolved. He was planning to go off to Iran with this cake in the shape of a key. I'd see if, uh, if that would lead uh, the Iranians to put pressure on the Syrians or whoever had these people ca uh, captive. It was just absolute cockamamie. So, but they used the Carter Doctrine to, to help justify what they were doing, but it was a separate exercise. It just happened to build upon some of the things that have been started, the so-called Rapid Deployment Joint Task Forces, RDJTF, wonderful phrase, which in uh, 1983, I think it was, became uh, what's now known as Central Command, uh, which still exists. And uh, there were some people who stopped thinking about fundamental strategic purposes and started looking about where can we put military force and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that didn't come out of the Carter Doctrine. And I think that uh, we did more than we needed to do. And uh, right now, I think uh, whether I happen to agree with what Biden is doing in Afghanistan, uh, we as a nation, after what happened to us on 9-11, wanted revenge. And so there was almost unanimity, not quite. Uh, I don't know, Jim Dorsey may have been on the other side of this, I have no idea. Uh, but uh, we're in favor of taking some revenge against whoever did it. We weren't about to attack Saudi Arabia, where 19 of the hostages came from. We weren't about to attack Germany, where the planning was done in, in Hamburg. Uh, so we attacked uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, Afghanistan and missed Osama bin Laden in, uh, uh, in Tora Bora. What a fantastic name. But then, unfortunately, we stayed. We forgot the lesson of Vietnam, 
that you cannot remake societies from outside. Uh, the only two times that it's actually worked was Germany and Japan after the Second World War, and that's what they wanted to do anyway. They were modern industrial societies who just needed some help, and of course, to help out with some of the other countries in, uh, in, in Western Europe. So we got stuck with that and got all kinds of ambitions, uh, and no president was willing to say, you know what, we got it wrong. We can't do this thing. And the military, the US military, which uh, will always salute and say, yes, sir, I can do that, kept doing this. We poured in tons of money, tons of money. And even then, who knows if something might have worked better, but the people in the Bush, this is way on there, Bush of White House uh, in 2003, which is two years after the uh, uh, invasion of Afghanistan, decided they wanted to invade Iraq. In fact, that is what they always wanted to do. And Afghanistan was a distraction from that. But all of a sudden, because of Afghanistan, these people who were just off on the side, because George W. Bush, he didn't want any wars or anything. He wanted a softer, gentler country. All of a sudden, they had the levers of power. And so they drove the United States into Iraq. And if it had succeeded, Iran was next on the list. That takes you way off your topic, but it's it's worth uh, looking at this. Please. Um, you know, President Biden also talked about, you know, in his UN address, you know, he, 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 he spoke, he didn't mention not even a single time the word China, but he did talk about, you know, um, the values debate, you know, between authoritarianism versus democracy. And, and, and that, of, of course, is a, is a subtle way of, of, of going about, you know, talking about China without doing so directly. Really? You think and so? Amazing. Gosh, you I'm didn't? Surprised. I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm joking. Come on. You think he meant and, China? Okay. All right. He also meant Russia, but it's not a matter. In this case, I wanted to go back to the Persian Gulf because, you know, in, in, in the presidential uh, campaign, uh, President Biden at that time, you know, he labeled Saudi Arabia as a pariah regime. And, and of course, what? Pariah, a pariah state. And, and, you know, since then, you know, besides the release of certain reports, there hasn't been really, you know, concrete action taken against, against the kingdom. And so, you know, with this, with this uh, values debate, you know, on, on authoritarianism versus democracy. And at the same time, um, you know, there hasn't been actually any concrete action done to its, its, its partners in, in, in the Persian Gulf. You know, what, what are your reflections? I mean, is it, is it showing, is it a show that it will continue to support, uh, you know, the states of the region and, and, and willing to overlook the foibles of, of, of these states? Well, if you leave from the Carter Doctrine in 1980 all the way to today, uh, great powers have to take power first and foremost, security interests first and foremost. It is important, however, in my judgment, not to lose sight of moral principles and values. Uh, I figured this out years ago as the way one would do this, because some people are anxious in every government it happened in Britain, it happened in France, it happened in any major power. You know, some people throw away values right away and say, That's, it's all about real politics. 
Uh, my argument is sometimes real politics intervenes and you have to do something in your national interest. But that's the point at which you say I'll compromise with values, not at the beginning. Some people lose sight of that. Uh, the fact is that uh, we still are dependent upon the flow of oil. If the United States isn't, our partners are. Include, I assume Singapore gets a lot of oil from the Persian Gulf. I should have looked it up before I came here. I don't think you have much native uh, uh, oil in uh, Singapore. I don't know, maybe you get some from Indonesia. You could tell me that. Uh, but one thing I think several administrations have failed to do is to recognize, and I feel very strongly about this, particularly uh, as uh, we have seen the American direct requirement of, for oil to go down. And as one comes to an understanding, serious understanding of an old adage, any country had, has oil can't drink it. They have to sell it. The idea that the Iranians would be so stupid as to block the Strait of, uh, of Hormuz, I mean, they'd be cutting off their own nose. If they're not, it's just not going to happen. But everybody does that. And some people say, well, we have to watch out for Saudi Arabia because they're going to help us against Iran. And in that, of course, there is very much the Israeli interest uh, to look at the Iranian threat. They have Hezbollah, much more so than Hamas, which is uh, really not a particularly big player in all of this, but, but uh, Hezbollah is. Uh, incidentally, the Israelis helped create Hamas, but that was not a matter as a counterweight to the Palestine Liberation Organization. You know, all kinds of games people play. But with regard to Saudi Arabia, the basic theme that I have, that what no administration, including this one, has been willing to pay attention to, which is that Sunni-based terrorism comes out of Saudi Arabia full stop. And most terrorism in the region is Sunni-based, not Shia-based. I mean, the Iranians do this, that, and the other thing. But that's, as we would say in America, small potatoes or small beer compared to Sunni-based. All of them, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS, uh, ISIS-K, Boko Haram, doesn't come from the government of Saudi Arabia. They say, oh, no, we had nothing to do with it. But rich religious Saudis are the inspiration and the funding for almost all of it. Pakistan was target number one. The export of Saudi-based, Saudi-inspired at least, Sunni terrorism into Pakistan. In Pakistan, uh, the prime minister today, the great cricketer, Amran Khan, said today, oh, no, we really had nothing to do with supporting the Taliban. Well, uh, anybody who knows Pinocchio would see his nose was growing way out like that. But come on, uh, if it hadn't been for uh, uh, Pakistan, the Taliban would have not had much chance to take over Afghanistan. But where I complain very loudly, get myself in trouble uh, here domestically in the United States, is that we should have told the Saudis a long time ago, cut it out. And frankly, uh, one of the Saudi leaders was saying, well, how can we control our borders? These are rich people, they can take their money, they go down to an airplane and get on. Come on, come on. Now, the Saudis could cut it out anytime they want to, but they're scared. And that goes, let's put it back, all the way back to 1979, when the Grand Mosque was seized. 
And that convinced the Saudis, we got a problem and we got to buy these people off. We got to buy them off. And they keep buying them off. And yes, it's becoming a more modernized society, but it's still, and they let, let women drive maybe, and, and maybe they uh, show some movies and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's still a society which is beholden to these folks and it spreads uh, throughout the region. Uh, the war in Yemen, for example, which uh, the Saudis have long coveted Yemen, long. Uh, they tried it, uh, try to remember at the time of Nasser, was it? Uh, in which the Egyptians were involved, it goes, goes way back, none of this stuff is new. And then uh, the Iranians got involved on the other side. And finally, finally, under this administration, President Biden said, enough is enough. Uh, this is the worst, and it's hard to quantify worst in a world that we have now, the worst slaughter going on in the world today. So we're not gonna have American arms anymore pouring into Saudi Arabia. That could be used for this kind of purpose. At the same time, we're interested in selling arms. The British are, the French are, uh, anybody who can. In fact, uh, one of the arguments is now being made by the uh, people in the region is, oh, if you don't sell us the arms, we'll just go to China and Russia to buy them. To which I would say, have a nice day. Back in the 19, kind of think, what well, one, I guess it was 1970s when I was at the end of the 1970s when I, I was working on this stuff. I think it was Jordan at the time. We were cutting off arms for Jordan or something like that. And they said, we'll go buy arms from the Soviet Union. And we said, have a nice day. Because once you buy arms from one country, uh, what is it? Uh, it's uh, kind of the total package of arms, which is both hardware and software. You become prisoner of your supplier. And if you want to switch from, let's say, a Western standard, native standard arms, which you get from the United States, Britain, or France, to get them from China or, uh, or Russia, you're going to have to uh, convert everything. And it takes, sometimes it takes years. So let's call it bluff. But uh, this came in particular because in, in the change of attitude in this country now, which uh, uh, there is less support now for Saudi Arabia than the public, because MBS, remind me what it says, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Salman, yeah, Salman, exactly. Made a huge mistake. He went after this journalist of no account, even nice guy, and I'm sure that kind of thing, uh, and then and, and Khashoggi, and sent his agents into uh, uh, Istanbul, kidnapped him, dismembered him, and where his body ended up, we don't know. And of course, uh, all of this was recorded. Uh, I assume it was the Turkish Secret Service and that sort of thing, and the Turks let us have it. But the problem was, it wasn't just an ordinary Saudi journalist, who cares about a Saudi journalist? It was a guy who wrote for the Washington Post. Boom, that suddenly became a huge issue in the United States, and it should be, as it should be. And ever since then, uh, MBS used to come here and they would be wined and dined and all the rich and famous and all the big leaders, they're all saying, they don't want a piece of the action, I want some of the Saudi money. Uh, I don't think he's been, been here since then. And, uh, and who knows if he did show up, somebody might sl uh, slap a lawsuit against him. 
But uh, one of the things, and this all came out of the 1970s, beginning with Iran, but simultaneously what was going on in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan with regard to the Sunni side of the equation and with transformations taking place in the, uh, uh, in the Arab world with the, uh, you then had what happened in uh, Tunisia with this one peddler who burned himself, led to an overthrow of the government and, and led to what was called the Arab Spring. Uh, it was very much premature. Ironically, the one country which did succeed up to a point and jury is still out now is in Tunisia. Uh, and then of course, uh, uh, there were various Europeans that decided to go after, uh, after Gaddafi. And uh, we joined in that, NATO provided certain elements. But uh, I am not sure that that much could have been done to help, quote, Arab Spring succeed. But it is true uh, that when it came down to choices, the choice of several American administrations, including right now, the issue right now on Capitol Hill among people who care about these things is whether we should continue with all of the military aid to Egypt that's going on or whether we should, uh, uh, should suspend it. And the reason we're not gonna, if we don't suspend it is because of Israel. For Israel, it all tied together, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a package. It's the most important step ever taken to provide security for Israel was the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty of 1978, which Jimmy Carter was instrumental in making happen. Uh, Israelis really never said thank you to him because he then also wanted to do something with the Palestinians and they were gonna be damned if they were gonna do anything with the Palestinians. In fact, Menachem Begin went back home. He promised Carter and there was a witness that he would suspend uh, settlement building until uh, the autonomy talks were finished. He got home, finally went too far and then he, uh, there was an old expression, he was economical with the truth. But I have heard President Carter, who I still see from time to time, say, I saw him at the end of the campaign in 1980, say to a major Jewish group, I was misled by Menachem Begin. Okay, now why was that so important, the, the treaty? Because it took the only Arab country that could make war against Israel out of the equation. Now, yes, there's been terrorism, that sort of thing, Hezbollah and the like, you know, sponsored, uh, backed by Iran, not sponsored by Iran. It was backed to, it came about in part because after this treaty, when it was not possible for any combination of Arabs to attack at least a conventional war against Israel, because Egypt was out of it. Uh, Saul wanted out of it. He said, I don't want this anymore. What, what good has that done for me? He said, who are these guys? Uh, I heard him say once uh, when I was with Ted Kennedy and we were meeting with uh, Sadat, and Kennedy, we'd been in Saudi Arabia, and Kennedy told me, well, the Saudi Arabia is the Saudis, is this, the Saudis, is that. And Sadat drew himself up and he said, the Saudis, who are they? They are people out of the desert, whereas I am Egypt. And those of you who are experts probably know that the Egyptians are Arabs when it suits them. The rest of the time, they're Egyptians. <laughs> that goes back a long way. But, uh, well, anyway, uh, the important strategic thing for the United States was that it also 
took the Arab-Israeli conflict out of potential confrontation between the United States and Soviet Union. When the last time we potentially had it was during the October War, the Camp, Yom Kippur War uh, uh, of uh, 1973. Uh, oh, incidentally, uh, and uh, then that went away. That achieved a lot for the United States. Uh, incidentally, the Israeli invasion under Sharon of Lebanon, I think it was 1982, was only possible because of the Israel Peace Treaty, because the Egyptians weren't going to come to their rescue, nor were the Syrians because they'd been clobbered before. So Sharon got away with it. We had Sabra and Shatila, which were the Maronites slaughtering a bunch of uh, Palestinians. And that was the birth of Hezbollah, which was then supported by Iran when Iran become became uh, Israel's target. And also as a way of their playing games and trying to expand their influence and the games that, uh, uh, that uh, people play, unfortunately, uh, in the region. Thank you for that elaborate response. Um, I think it creates an opening to ask about the JCPOA and we've got a few questions coming in from the floor. So I'm gonna start with the first on the JCPOA. So the question is, Many things have happened since Trump left. It's a return to the JC. Many things have happened since President Trump left the, oh, okay. the, the over office. May of 2018, yeah. Yeah. It's a return to the JCPOA still feasible. Secretary Blinken hinted that there will come a time when returning to it won't make sense. But Iran is holding fast to its demand that they return to the original deal. Is it still worth pursuing this deal? And how do you think it will end up? Too many people are talking too much. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what presidential candidate Biden's uh, concerns were, his bottom line concerns. I do know what uh, uh, Mr. Blinken, who became Secretary of State, what his concerns were. Uh, during the campaign, what they said is, yes, we turned to the JCPOA, look what Trump did it was a mistake, uh, was Obama's chief uh, achievement, et cetera, et cetera. But Iran has to move first. And they said that all the way through the first few statements at, when they were in office, until Rob Malley, who became the uh, number one uh, negotiator in this, who incidentally was at Bill Clinton's Camp David, he was the only at Bill Clinton's Camp David at the end of the Bill Clinton administration, when I guess he was looking for a Nobel Prize or something. Uh, he was the only serious Middle East person on the American delegation uh, at, uh, at that Camp David. Uh, for Rob Malley, at least there was an unnamed State Department spokesman shifted the dialogue to say it should be simultaneous, okay? Uh, now, my view right away was the United States should simply have reversed the uh, decision by Trump. Look at all the other things that uh, Biden changed immediately. Uh, he uh, uh, rejoined the uh, uh, World Trade Organization, uh, or whatever it was, the, uh, well, the various kinds of the World Health Organization, whatever, whatever they were, I can't remember what they were. He rejoined all these things, did a lot of things, reversing the things that he could have done the same thing as well. Uh, the Iranians themselves would have welcomed that. They made that clear, except there was one little item in there 
that is still in the American negotiating position. And if you look it up on the internet, it says, uh, we are prepared if the Iranians will stop what they've been doing. And incidentally, they held off on breaking their side of the deal for a full year after Trump did, did what he did. But uh, there's one little thing that's in the American position today. Look it up on the official statements of the State Department. It says, yes, we're prepared to remove all the sanctions related to the JCPOA. What they don't, there's a lot in that tiny little thing. Uh, the second most important, in my judgment, achievement strategically is for security terms for Israel in its entire history. Leave aside beating the Arabs of 67 and 73, which were not lasting security, was the JCPOA, which was done by Barack Obama, who along with uh, Jimmy Carter were the only two presidents since Eisenhower, 1956 Suez uh, to take on the Israel lobby, to take on Israel and say, come on, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do this. The very same. But I don't think Obama knew that what was being done to him on this. Because the day, and I think it's February 2016, the day in which the JCPOA went into effect, and the United States removed the sanctions that had been put on. Uh, by Trump uh, when he left the JCPOA, et cetera. That very day, the Department of the Treasury put on new sanctions on Iran. That was cheating. Well, of course, the Iranians, the uh, IRGC, uh, uh, started launching some ballistic missiles. Uh, of course, uh, and a number of people said they were cheating. Well, that was it was not good diplomacy, it didn't help things, just as, as the new sanctions, the sanctions were tangible. If you go back and look at the, you know, you gotta read the documents. Uh, the United Nations Security Council resolution implementing the JCPOA says the following one, two, three, four should happen. And pretty please, it said to Iran, pretty please don't run any missile tests, ballistic missile tests. It doesn't make it a requirement. It's a pretty please. It's a, we'd like you to do that, all right? Uh, but they still they did it in that sour things, just as what we did. So that idea of the sanctions that were put on the very same day the JCPOA sanctions came off, uh, those are still in being. And unless something's been happening in these uh, negotiations, they're going to still be. And in fact, the United States is still following, in effect, the 12-point program that uh, was adopted by the former Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo. And if you read it, it's a surrender document. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that if we did, if we, I think we should just do it today. We, tomorrow morning, the president could say, I hereby rejoin the JCPOA. Now, what do you want, what do you say about that, Iran? And they'd come back and what about the other sanctions? And we'd say, well, what about your ballistic missile? We'd have something to talk about. But as long as it's going on this way, we may find ourselves not in a situation where the United States will walk away from it because that could lead us in the direction of a war. Now, there's some people in Israel who would be delighted. Uh, you had the uh, new prime minister of uh, Israel came to see the president, said what Israel wants in regard to Iran. And just before they got there, he said, we're going to do in the Iranians deaths by a thousand cuts. 
hey, come on, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's still war, okay? Uh, we don't want, the American people don't want any more war in the Middle East. We're sick of it, sick of it. Uh, the Iraq experience was a disaster, absolute disaster. And a lot of people contributed to getting us in there. The US media almost person for person. And Jim Dorsey can tell me maybe he was on the opposite side. I was on the opposite side. I was arguing against uh, invasion and I got blackballed, blacklisted, I'm sorry, blacklisted by some prominent American journalists, uh, journalism outlets that I used to be involved with because that was not acceptable. You had to be for that war. And then of course, uh, it all went screwball and it turned out to be the biggest disaster in American foreign policy, at least since Vietnam, okay? That's now, there's still some people who claim that's not true, but uh, uh, they're nuts, but, uh, but uh, uh, there you are. But we have now spent something like $6 trillion, five to $6 trillion. I mean, that's real money. And we've lost a lot of lives five, six, 7,000 people killed, 20,000 or more injured, and interminable numbers of people are coming back with uh, post-traumatic uh, stress syndromes. A higher rate of suicides in the American military than, than we've had in maybe since the Second World War, maybe, maybe, maybe ever. Uh, so I would just uh, rejoin the JCPOA and do it tomorrow morning. But Mr. Big Biden, I believe, has looked at the blowback you would get from members of Congress, of course, from the Trump people, or they'll choose anything. They don't have to, people in Congress don't have to meet a payroll. They can just say whatever they want. And also from the Israel lobby and the Saudi lobby, the oil lobby, less oil than Saudis and the UAE and that sort of thing. He'd get hammered if he'd do that, even though in my judgment, it is the right thing strategically to do. Because if Iran, whether they're playing chicken or not, is leading up to get more and more fissionable material. And I think it is clear we will not allow Iran to get a bomb. Now, you get enough fissionable material for a bomb, then you got to fashion a bomb, then you got to find out how to deliver it, and then you don't have what's called second strike deterrence, so you can still find out where it is and blast it. Uh, the only country that called our bluff on this was the uh, was North Korea, which now has second strike deterrence against the United States and against everybody else. We cannot attack North Korea. In fact, one of the remarkable things is that Iran did not already get the bomb some years ago. I mean, if you're sitting here as a strategic analyst in Iran, you're gonna say, now, wait a second, Charlie, let's look at this very simply. Uh, North Korea went ahead and got the bomb and America won't dare attack them. Gaddafi was convinced to give up the bomb and they went in and killed him, occupied his country, ruined his country. So Mr. National Security Advisor here in Goom uh, or Tehran, what conclusion do you draw from that? The very fact that Iran didn't get the bomb uh, is, is quite remarkable, but they know they won't be allowed to do it. And I just hope that wisdom comes to Mr. Blinken and Mr. Sullivan and the president of the United States swallow hard and just rejoin the JCPOA uh, before Iran does something stupid. The number of times in history 
in which people think they can calculate the tolerance of the other side and get it wrong. Uh, Saddam Hussein thought he could get away with invading Kuwait and that'd be fine because uh, the uh, American Chargé d'Affaires uh, then told him, in effect, we don't care what you do around here. Mostly, almost certainly acting on instructions. So we had other things to worry about. And Saddam, I'm sure, said, well, hey, I can get away with this. The Americans aren't going to bother. And I think the day that we started on uh, Desert Shield and then uh, Desert Storm, I think he probably took his American advisor out and shot him. Uh, it was similar, though, a long time ago, in which the famous example in 1950, in which uh, Dean Asterson gave a speech about the American defense perimeter. Yeah, you should never do that kind of thing. You never do it like that. He left out Korea. Some speechwriter left it out. Uh, the Soviets decided, hey, what the heck, they left it out. They invaded South Korea and look what happened. The United States came pouring in and we had our war with China and we're, we're still there. Uh, so uh, I think what we should do is just rejoin the JCPOA. Now, to be fair, domestic politically, the two presidents after Eisenhower who took on the Israel lobby and was prepared to put American interests first, Jimmy Carter, trying to do something with Palestinians, and Obama with the JCPOA have been trashed by opponents. And so if I were Biden, I'd think very carefully. Biden is also deeply committed on this kind of thing. Um, and uh, he's still learning, getting his sea legs on foreign affairs. And uh, the speech today is more words than, uh, than substance. Uh, they still haven't, I'm gonna say something, I'll get in deep trouble with my American colleagues. He was in the Senate for 36 years, okay? Uh, Senator, and I worked for Senator, I worked for Ted Kennedy three and a half years. Unless you're on the Armed Services Committee, in foreign affairs, you don't have anything to do. Armed Services Committee, you've got to pass budgets, you can do all this kind of stuff. Uh, if you're in Foreign Relations Committee, what do you do? You approve candidates for office. And incidentally, Biden still only has a small percentage, smaller than ever before at this point, of his foreign affair appointments who've been confirmed. A handful of ambassadors, and I think five or six people in the State Department. That's nothing. You can't run a railroad that way, as, as, as we would say. If you're on the Foreign Relations Committee, you also uh, approve treaties. And once every generation, you approve a, a, a Foreign Assistance Act. Nobody likes doing that. And for the rest of the time, what do you do? You make noise. You make noise. Biden was good at making noise. Ted Kennedy made a lot of noise. I wrote a lot of his, I wrote a lot of his noise. He understood what was going on. Later, he went on armed services. Uh, and as vice president, uh, you're vice president. You don't have to make decisions. He was close to Obama and uh, as close as Walter Mondale was to uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, the, the two exceptions to the rule. But he never had to take a decision. And now suddenly he's got this team who worked for him all these years who never had to, to use an expression, meet a payroll. And so what was the first thing they did? They went off to Anchorage and insulted the Chinese. I mean, that was an amateur's mistake, amateur. What you do when Mr. Blinken and Mr. Sullivan do with the Chinese counterparts is you say, welcome to Anchorage. We have a marvelous sled race every, every uh, January. Come back for this. Uh, nice food here. We get you some nice salmon. 
we're now going to have some serious talks. And afterwards, you'll want to talk to the press and we'll want to talk to the press. Instead, they lectured the Chinese for 16 minutes on human rights and things like that. So the Chinese lectured back for 16 minutes, which is all the American people saw. Okay. Uh, and then the way they handled the allies over the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was incidentally foreordained by what Trump had already agreed. It's in the document. Read it. 29 February 2020. It's, only it's all in there. We're going to get out by the 1st of May 2021. That's it. We're all gone. And anybody at that point who believed that the uh, government and the military and Kabul was going to survive, if they couldn't win with us there, how are they going to win without us there? Same thing happened in Vietnam. When the Geneva Accords were in Vietnam in 73, the United States Congress cut off all aid. So what were they going to do? Two years later, they collapsed. All right, fine. Uh, well, so the same. So that's what happened. Well, what Biden achieved was he got four extra months to get out. But then, instead of working out a process, keeping Bagram Air Base and uh, helping to do these things in stages, uh, all of a sudden he sprung it on the Allies, and the Allies said, "Wait a second, <laughs> we got to get out too. We're only there because of you." The Allies did not go to Afghanistan because of concerns about terrorism. Now, they had some terrorism, but it wasn't coming out of there. It was coming out of other places. The Alliance went there because they were worried, just as the reason they supported it at 9-11, they were worried we would lose interest in Europe where only the United States can take care of Russia. Okay, that's why they went to Afghanistan, not for any inherent thing. And so, uh, but I am confident, I have no way of knowing this, that part of the deal that was cut by Mr. Khalizad, who is an Afghan national born there, a Pashtun, incidentally, American citizen, I suspect there was a, some kind of side understanding was that if we were going to get out, the Taliban wasn't going to get in the way. And we went for all those months with no casualties. A lot of Afghans got killed. And the only 13 Americans who got killed was almost an accident to whoever was running security outside of Kabul airport uh, got it wrong. And a suicide bomber managed to blow up uh, 13 Americans and a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, Afghan civilians. Uh, but I'm pretty sure there was an agreement there. Uh, and then what happened this last week, uh, we reached this agreement with the British and Australians for uh, nuclear submarines which won't come online for a long, long time. And incidentally, we already had a defense agreement with Britain. Doesn't apply in the Far East, but okay. We already have a defense agreement with uh, Australia, goes back to 1951, if they're attacked. And uh, it has psychological benefits. Uh, uh, it has symbolic benefits. But the bad thing about it is the Australians decided, we don't want these pokey little French diesel submarines, which we've already signed a contract from. We want some nice American-designed uh, nuclear submarines. Well, nobody, I guess, bothered to tell uh, Biden uh, first that the, uh, that the uh, 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 French had already offered to build nuclear submarines for Australia, and they turned them down. They turned them down. Okay. Uh, I just want to, is it a different interview? I thought that you were it's, live, it's a live interview.
Live interview. I won't be too long. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, and Mr. Biden had already had a meeting with Macron while this was going on. Tony Blinken had had a meeting with his French counterpart. They didn't even mention it, that this was going on. So the thing blows up. The French are making a fuss. Uh, they canceled the meeting with Blinken uh, at the UN General Assembly. Who cares? It's a, uh, one of Hunter's rules is one of the worst things that ever happened to diplomacy was the invention of the jet plane. People have too many meetings, uh, but most diplomacy which works is done at a low level. And if you have a summit of leaders that you haven't prepared for, you're wasting your time. The last time it really mattered was Potsdam in August 1945, when leaders got together and could actually make, uh, uh, make decisions. Uh, and you had this thing last week in which the pres our president called up the uh, Chinese president and said, why don't we have a summit? And Mr. Xi said, no. Well, I think, how can you propose a summit in which you haven't even bothered clearing away any of this stuff before? And it just doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. In fact, uh, holding the summit with, uh, uh, with uh, Putin, but not a bad idea. Uh, nothing really got done. But at least it showed the American people and the allies that it's possible to talk to uh, to Mr. Putin. So that was a uh, useful to break uh, break the ice. Didn't didn't resolve anything. They, 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 there are other problems that have to be done. So now, here is Mr. Biden having to go up to the General Assembly, wondering about who's going to see him, having to undo damage done to the alliance, unforced errors as we would say, didn't have to happen. Uh, the one in Afghanistan, okay, it was complicated. This particular one with Australia, it made no sense at all not to do it correctly. And incidentally, I can tell you one thing about the Europeans, having dealt with them for a long time. They will often allow the French who love a fight to get out in front. And they say, oh, those French, oh, they're just terrible those. But they're saying, I'm glad the French are doing it. They're expressing what we feel. Now we don't have to do it. Uh, and the European Union has also they, has also nodded its head and said, this was kind of dumb. So here's Mr. Biden who scored a major hit at the beginning of the administration by not being Biden. Reinforced Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, and did all these other things. And now he's having to play catch up to start all over again, building a relationship uh, the alliance. Uh, he'll do it because the allies need us, we need them. Uh, this will be a flash in the pan later on. But the one that worries me right now is clocks ticking with regard to Iran, where people can miscalculate and something bad can happen. Uh, the informal communication with uh, North Korea, you don't have to talk to communicate. It's pretty solid. They're not going to attack us. We're not going to attack them. Okay, uh, so I don't think that's half as dangerous. Uh, when Obama suppose uh, suppose let's say Obama supposedly told Trump, "Your worst crisis is going to be North Korea." I thought that was nonsense. Uh, the most important crisis turned out to be Trump himself. Uh, but now, what I would do is just rejoin the JCPOA tomorrow morning. If the Iranians said no thanks, we got to decide these other things. Fine then that's their problem. But at least we'll have done the right thing. And the allies 
who've been kind of, and the Russians and Chinese have been kind of trying to get together because they're worried about a war as well. Uh, everybody, all the other members of the JCPO, the, uh, uh, the Chinese, the Russians, and the Europeans would say, oh, and all the other allies would say, thank you, Mr. Biden, for doing that. I'm sorry you're going to have some domestic problems, but you know, that's your problem. Thank you for such an elaborate response. I think you've answered you've answered a number of questions from the floor already. And of course, we've gone past time by about 10 minutes, but I hope you'll indulge us in one last question to wrap up Absol the discussion. Absolutely. So then I got to go, feed my dogs, pardon? Yeah, yeah. Our last question is about American foreign policy being criticized for placing too much emphasis on the military dimension and not enough on diplomacy and other nonviolent tools. So the, the nuclear submarine move that you talked about earlier is a big one on the defense front. But you know, China, on the other hand, and China is, is that is a big elephant in the room, has responded to, to this uh, defense agreement, criticizing it as a Cold War mentality on the US's part. So, you know, what can we say about America's approach, you know, in terms of its, its foreign policy, should we should you use more, you know, military tools or more diplomacy? Do do you need more of that diplomacy? A lot, a lot of the Chinese uh, went to U.S. universities. They know how to talk our language. There's a lot of blah blah going on. Uh, it is true that to have the United States and Britain, which is trying to find something to do after Brexit, which was an, an absolute stupidity on the British taking themselves in effect out of Europe, which is where they need to be. And they got to find a place to park their aircraft carrier. And why not put it out in Perth or Adelaide or someplace like that. Uh, but at least it does send a signal to the uh, Chinese that uh, we're all on the same page uh, talking about things. And I can't remember if it was today or tomorrow in which the so-called Quad are meeting, which is uh, the United States, Japan, uh, Australia, and India. And that again is a lot of blue smoke and mirrors, but it's useful. It shows people waking up and beginning to realize, and the Chinese beginning to realize, that they're not going to have it all their own way, even though the agreement with Australia won't come to fruition for a long time, uh, except they're talking about access, undersea access, so it may be they'll want to tap into Chinese cables that are going through uh, certain areas, I don't know. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, Ever since 9-11, uh, uh, the military has been able to claim a larger chunk of uh, the national security budget, way beyond what it should have. And uh, the president, he's got his hands full. Uh, and he's got an election coming up on the Congress next year. It's going to be hard put to keep the Senate and also the House. So he's not going to be able to worry about that. But he's already signaled we're going to do this militarily. And quite frankly, the American military, the American public want to do less militarily. Uh, and when Biden said, lots of presidents say, lots of presidents say, diplomacy is the first resort, military is the last resort. I expect Biden actually try to do that, except that he's got himself in a corner on the Iranian thing in which he may be losing his options. Already done something with regard to Yemen. That's a good thing. Uh, trying to limit certain kinds of arms sales. Somewhat of a good, good thing. Uh, so I think he is operating on the clear knowledge that the military should not play games that might get us into trouble. And at some point, you've got to move the money. 
uh, I'll tell you one little anecdote. Several years ago, the uh, uh, Defense Department has a thing called the Quadrennial Defense Review. Every four years, they put together a budget. And there was this Beltway Bandits that I was helping out, which was working up uh, what needed to be done. They were getting, they sent uh, questionnaires out to every combatant commander, US combatant commander, and to say, what do you need? And each one came back and said, we need the entire defense budget in part of the world. Hold on. And then one of the, the senior military people in this little group, three, a three-star general said, you know, it's too bad that the State Department isn't doing more. I said, I'll tell you, General, why don't you do the following? Why don't you just buy the State Department out of petty cash? The State Department gets about 15% of the money that goes to the Defense Department. You want to do more diplomacy, you got to give more money. Give more money. You got to get their team confirmed by the Senate of the United States. You got to tell Senator Menendez, uh, uh, who's got a lot of power and, and is a very strong supporter of the Israel lobby. And why do you think uh, Biden uh, reinforced the negative American policy towards Cuba? Because Senator Menendez was born in Cuba. All right, and Florida is still a very important state. And even though the younger Cuban Americans, they've given it up. They say, oh, come on, we, we like being Americans. We don't want to go back to Cuba. It's a poor country. Uh, but Biden has got this thing too. But that's what I'm looking forward to in foreign policy. The president actually, and he hires some people in addition to the able people he has who understand strategy, strategic thinking, how to relate what is happening with Britain, Australia, and the United States to what is happening with Europe. It may well be that nobody in the administration actually thought about it. Uh-uh. We're a superpower. You gotta have people around to think about these things. Trump didn't have anybody who thought about it. Uh, he just uh, did all this kind of stuff that we're still unwinding. So next time we'll have a Singapore out in front and make you the great power. I got in trouble once during the Vietnam. I got in trouble once during the Vietnam War. I was on the BBC World Service, and it was an Australian program. I was trying to be nice to the Australians. I said, "Oh, we're going to be thinking of Australia as a great power in the region," and everybody just laughed. There you go. All right, there you have it. I think we've we've wrapped up the discussion nicely with the last question. And and uh, thank you. And I'd like to thank you, Ambassador Dr. Robert Hunter, for joining us today for a very, very frank discussion with all your responses and also to our audience for putting in the questions. And of course, uh, my thanks also goes out to our events team who made this webinar operational today. So I hope we stay in touch, uh, Ambassador thank Hunter. You. And Thank of you. course, let's keep in touch by email. Thank you very much, everyone. And see you guys Congratulations to your program. Uh, there are a lot of talented people around, I'm sure, who would love to be involved in what you're doing because among other things, a lot more attention is gonna be paid, paid to your part of the world and your expertise coming back to us is gonna be absolutely critical. One of our problems in the United States is we don't have enough people who understand that part of the world, you know, don't understand China, just don't. We know all about Europe. We know everything needed about Europe. We know a lot about Middle East. We just don't understand the Far East and China, except for the experts. Yeah, absolutely right. I won't Thank hold you. you back. 
from uh, feeding the dogs already. We, we could hear them uh, barking. And so uh, I'll let you go now. And uh, thanks for joining us at such a late hour. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.